Welcome to the Paulcast. It's Father Rob and Mother Liz. And the Paulcast, in case you are unaware, is an an an, an official <laughs> an, an official official production of St. Paul's Episcopal Church in New Orleans. And you can learn more about St. Paul's at stpaulsnola.org. So today we start a series of a couple of podcasts, a two-part podcast that we are calling The Political Christian. And notice that we didn't say The Partisan Christian. We said The Political Christian. So Mother Liz, are aren't we supposed to be totally apolitical and we are not supposed to have any thoughts or opinions or feelings about politics in any way? Isn't that the way that it's supposed to work? God, wouldn't that be great? (laughs) I mean, like right now, I think we all need a break from the kind of politics we've been kind of thrust into, or it seems like we've been thrust into really, we've built this whole thing ourselves and now we have to, you know, lie in it. Um, Yeah. That it, that would be really nice if that were the case, that we could just totally disengage from it. But the reality of our lives is that we, by our very existence, we are political beings. Um, the decisions that we make, even minute ones about like the food that we buy, um, cars that we drive, where we choose to live, jobs that we choose to do, they all have some kind of political impact on our local communities. Um, all the way up to our national communities and international communities. So while it would be really nice to live in in a space that wasn't so political or being able to check out of the politics and everything, the reality is it's just not an option because our lives are political. I think that one reason people probably get a little bent out of shape at the thought of Christians uh, having particularly Christian opinions about politics to some people's ears sounds like we're trying to, I guess, enforce our morality on the culture or enforce our own theological beliefs on the culture. So, I mean, for my part, I want to be clear that, you know, that's not what we're talking about here necessarily. I'm not saying we want a Christian theocracy unless mother Liz and I are the ones who get to be in charge because then everything would be perfect. But that's not what, that's not what we mean. But I think that's what a lot of people hear when they think about, you know, Christians being involved in politics. Yeah. And I think that as a nation, we hold up this good of the separation of church and state. And I think we get confused about what that means. I am not a legal scholar. And so I'm not going to try and give anyone a definition, but the church having something to say about political rhetoric or the way that government functions or the way that people move and live and be in society is not an infringement of the separation of church and state. Um, And in fact, I think it's the responsibility of the church to hold other organizations to account, including itself, Mm -hmm. um, and to help other people navigate institutions. So here's what we're going to do for part one of this podcast is we're going to talk a little bit about, or let me say, we're going to talk about this from a, from an Anglican perspective and we're going to use something 
that is known in our tradition as the three-legged stool. And the three-legged stool in the Anglican tradition is scripture, tradition, and reason. That these are the, the lenses, the tools we use to look at the world. And so we're gonna look, we're gonna look at what it means to be a political Christian, not a partisan Christian, but a political Christian through the lens of scripture, tradition, and reason broadly. Uh, today we're really just gonna look at scripture and tradition. And this idea of a three-legged stool came first from an Anglican priest, a priest from the Church of England named Richard Hooker. And you may or may not have also heard of something called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think most people have heard about that. I mean. So the Wesleyan <laughs> Quadrilateral is uh, kind of like a three-legged stool, but there's four legs to this stool. So you could call it the four-legged stool, but Wesleyan Quadrilateral is so much more fun to say. So the Wesleyan quadrilateral, instead of just scripture, tradition, reason, is scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. But I would, I've always said that I think that the three-legged stool actually implies experience because uh, reason is, is both your rational brain, your thinking brain, and your intuitive brain. Um, and then, you know, I think maybe one way people think about the Wesleyan way of looking at it and Wesleyan, by the way, is John Wesley of the, who was also an Anglican and, and is the founder of the Methodist tradition that came out of Anglicanism. And as I tell my Methodist friends one day, I hope they will come back to mother church, but that's a whole other <laughs> podcast. We'll but <laughs> I think sometimes the way it's interpreted is that, that uh, maybe, maybe what Wesley was thinking about is reason as the purely rational part. And then experiences are, experience of the world. But um, I think Hooker would say that that reason is both the rational and intuitive piece. And then I would say that the experience piece is us sitting on the stool. So it's it's still there. The experience yeah, piece full, is still there. Full engagement of scripture, tradition, and reason. Yeah. Yes. Experience. So... Um, First thing I, I'd like to bring up is a quotation that I heard the other day on a competing podcast because all the other ones are terrible, but we have to listen to them so that we know what we're up against. Yes, it's, it's a competing podcast, but the um, the quote giver is a friend of the pod. A friend of he the pod. He doesn't know he's a friend of the pod, but he is. He has no idea he is a friend of the pod, but, but we're he's like our... He's our friend. We, we listen to him all the time. It's a guy named David French, who you may have run across in various articles or podcasts online. He actually writes for a news outlet that Mother Liz and I like called The Dispatch, which we recommend. But um, So this is what he said, and, and I want your thoughts on this, Mother Liz. He said in this, this other podcast, we've allowed our members to be catechized into politics by Fox News and MSNBC, and not by the church. We've allowed our members to be catechized into politics by Fox News and MSNBC, and not by the church. Thoughts? I mean, that's a painful statement. I think, like, that hurts. Ouch, friend of the pod, David French. But I think he's <laughs> speaking to a lot of truth. Um, 
for many years, I think we, uh, and at least Father Rob and I have been talking about this. I know people throughout the church talk about how we, that we, the church, don't often do a good job of catechizing our members. We don't do a great job of teaching people good Christian education. Um, we will let people come into the church and receive, receive, receive all of this great stuff in the liturgy, but then we don't tell them what the liturgy is about or really what it means. And we just expect people to know it because, well, it's great. And of course, everybody should know this. Like, how would you not know? <laughs> you know. We just kind of assume everybody knows without ever engaging in meaningful conversation about it. And so then we kind of completely miss the fact that people don't, they appreciate it, they love it, and they have some understanding of it, but we have taken no responsibility for their overall education. Um, we'll throw some books at people, but then we won't like have a meaningful class about it or even I think to another extent, like track the process. Education is a journey and um, we will just expect that people are always working on this journey, but people have other things going on in their lives and they're not always thinking about how um, God is moving in their lives and what they understand about God and how what they understand about the church and the church's role in the world and um, the church's history even. Mm -hmm. uh, so this quote when I heard it for the first time really kind of like hit me like a wave and I was like yeah this is really where I feel like we are especially right now it seems to be it seems to be really clear that this is where we are and that the moral the moral education of our society is not being does not seem to be formed by the religious leaders of our society, but rather by a 24 hour news cycle that's trying to get viewers and online news organizations that are trying to get clicks. Um, yeah. yeah, we are, we are locked into partisanship and, and Christians, well-meaning Christians on either side of the aisle sometimes tend to think that their party's platform is a perfect expression of Christianity. And, and that, that our votes should reflect that, that, that it is a, an absolutely, it's like a Christian doctrine. You either have to vote like this or you have to vote like this without any recognition that maybe neither party has the corner on the truth as writ large. Right. Another friend of the pod, presiding Bishop Michael Curry, I guess he's really the bestie of the pod. We like David French, oh, yeah. but but yeah. the PB is yeah the official bestie. Shout out Michael Curry because I know he's listening right now. You know, we're, a faithful listener. We, we miss you. You're welcome to come and be on the podcast anytime you want. Anytime, anytime you want. So he recently said, "Partisan neutrality does not mean moral neutrality." Partisan neutrality does not mean moral neutrality. I think this is one of those areas where maybe we have not catechized people well enough. And that's why we all so easily get locked into our partisan bubbles is that, um, that we really are as Christians called to be neutral to party and less neutral on on actual issues that have something to do with an expression of Christian ethics and morality. 
-hmm. the ethics and morality of Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that we, I think there's a lot of pressure, right, to pick a side. There's a mm -hmm. lot of pressure to stake a claim um, and to be right. Um, and we have a lot of investment in this too, emotionally, and some people financially have a lot of investment in these things. But I, th I really appreciate what you said um, just a few mo moments ago that that well-meaning people get sucked into this, right? This is people really trying to do their best to do the right thing, what they believe to be the right thing for for everybody, right? Including and, themselves, but and, and including well, us. And including us. Yeah. Yeah. We we're all into this. Right. Right. Um, but it is like, it's tough. It's, and it's, I think that when the church fails in its responsibility to properly catechize people, we don't leave them with another option. Mm -hmm. They get their information from somewhere. They get their guidance from somewhere. And yeah. if the church is leading or guiding or teaching, mm -hmm. that's it. Yeah. So this is our maybe small stab at, offering a little bit of Christian catechesis. I'm going to give you one more quotation, and then we're going to look at some passages of Scripture. But this is from a document from 2016 that you can easily find online by Googling it, or we'll include it in the show notes in the uh, <laughs> for you so you can find it, uh, a link. So this is from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. It's a document called Forming Conscious Consciences, for faithful citizenship. And it says, quote, it's important for all citizens to see beyond party politics, to analyze campaign rhetoric critically, and to choose their political leaders according to principle, not party affiliation or mere self-interest. And I think that word principle is very important. And also the recognition of self-interest is important because from my perspective, I think that a lot of our party alignments have a lot to do with our own self-interest, either for ourselves personally or people we care about in our lives or, or whatever. And it may be that the things that our party wants to affirm or resist are very moral things, but Mother Liz, you and I've talked about this too, I find that when I really try hard to apply my Christian lens to the way I look at politics, that I feel like I don't really have a, a political home in our two-party system, that there are some things that I like about the Republican Party, and I have voted for Republican candidates and and do vote for Republican candidates. And there are some things I like about the Democratic Party, and I have voted for Democratic candidates and, and do sometimes vote for Democratic candidates. But it's never really, if I'm being trying to be intellectually honest and trying to be faithful in my voting, uh, whether it's for a candidate or whether it's for a particular policy or, you know, right now, like we have a bunch of, a bunch of constitutional amendments in our state election that's coming up. Uh, if I'm trying to, to say, really, how would Jesus vote, <laughs> to coin a phrase, not really, uh, then, you know, it might not come down to what my party thinks is best 
at all, whatever I consider my quote unquote party. Yeah, I think that's a really difficult place to be, right? To find yourself. Because we've all, like, this is kind of the common refrain about politics in our country that we're like choosing between two terrible choices. Mm-hmm. Like, the, another phrase, like, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. Like, they're both devils. Like, none of this is good. I'm not excited mm-hmm. about voting for any of this. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes I do get excited. I mean, just voting in general is exciting for me. I love that process. But me too. I, I don't often find myself feeling excited about how I'm voting um, or how I feel like I need to vote. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't expect my Christian values to line up perfectly with any candidate ever. I know Mm -hmm. that what people are um, flawed, right? Mm -hmm. And, we make, we create flawed institutions. Um, And so I can't expect any of this to go down perfectly. And I have to make compromises. So the concept of like who Jesus would vote for is a really difficult one for me to engage with because (laughs) I like, (laughs) I don't, I don't know how, like, I don't, I don't feel like I have a good model for how Jesus made compromises. I'm not sure that Jesus did make compromises like that. You know, I just, I don't know. That's a struggle for me. Well, this past Sunday, we had the reading about render to, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. And where I kind of got to in my own reflection on it and in the sermon that I preached about it is that Jesus is subtly saying Oh, and by the way, everything belongs to God, (laughs) even Caesar himself. So there's a kind of, you know, sometimes people will take that passage and say, well, what Jesus means is there are, you know, secular or earthly things, worldly things. And the way we handle those things is different than the way we handle the, the, the sacred and heavenly things. And I don't think that he's meaning that at all. I think that ultimately the message is one that is kind of uncompromising and radical. And that's that everything belongs to God. And when you really start to, to play that out, uh, I don't think that, that Jesus would compromise. And, and one of the commentators that I read about that passage talked a lot about how throughout the Gospel of Matthew leading up to this point, how Jesus really shows again and again that he refuses to participate in the systems uh, yeah. that, that whether it's whether it's the Roman occupation system or it is the the temple system, the religious system, whatever it is, he sort of pulls himself outside of these things and asks people to look at them in a different way. I kind of wonder if Jesus would vote at all sometimes because I wonder that too. Yeah. But then I'm conflicted because I feel like we like we have a responsibility to vote, to engage in this process because we exist within it. We create it. We benefit from it. We, you know, like, yeah, no. I don't know, man. That's tough. That's one so, of those times where I really wish God would send me a postcard and just be like, Liz, <laughs> this is what's up. And maybe that's the fundamental claim we're trying to make is I think I, I think everyone should vote. Uh, I'm not claiming, though, that I think this is easy, 
that right. if you just start looking at your politics through your Christian catechesis and lens, that it's all suddenly going to become easy. I don't think that that's true at all. But I do think that we need to pull ourselves outside of the system that we have created, where we think that one party whichever party it is, has the moral high ground and that that is the ultimate Christian expression to, mm -hmm. to vote for either this or to vote for that. Um, and to pull ourselves out of this system where we demonize other people if we know what their choice is and it's different from ours. Right. And, and that's the stuff that I think is really dangerous. That's what I think Jesus would be way more concerned about. Yes. Um, not that Jesus doesn't wouldn't say that our votes have consequences. I, I don't mean that either. Uh, this is all just, this is all a sort of dangerous place that I think we, we find ourselves in. But if we are Christians and we say that, and that's what we say, by the way, when we, when we say the baptismal covenant together, that we're claiming for ourselves that our fundamental identity above all other identities is that we are Christian, that then that that is the lens by which we should look at everything not not even just politics but but everything should come from that perspective knowing that we won't always get it right yeah so all right i want you to grab your bible mother liz we're going to have some yeah. fun looking at a couple of scripture passages and uh while you get your bible i'll say when i was a kid and i grew up in the baptist church we used to play this game that was like a competition that that manifested itself in churches and then in like whole regional areas and everything I'm else called Bible drills with you sword drills that's what I'm they call them it. yeah we're gonna do we're gonna do no, Bible, drill. Bible drill is a less violent name for it but uh, they were called <laughs> sword drills so all right so the first one of us that gets to Romans 13 1 through 7 is going to get a donut on Sunday Romans 13 yeah. One through seven. The other one does not get a donut. I mean, Romans I so I cheated because I went ahead and opened it because I was like, I'm not playing this game. Romans 13. I'm, I'm making so I'm already there. You, you found it? Yeah. <sighs> okay. So I told you I just cheated. Okay. All right. Maybe we can both have a donut. All right. You want to read it? Read? <laughs> That's your prize. Well, we're going to have to ask Miss <laughs> Lori. She's the keeper of the donuts. Okay. Romans 13, one through seven. Would you, would you please read it for us? Mother Liz. Romans 13, one through seven. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good and you will receive its approval for it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason you also pay taxes for the authorities are God's servants, busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due them, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. 
So obviously the Bible doesn't really have a whole lot to say about voting because these were not democratic societies that people lived in. And actually, if you think about it, whenever the apostles chose other apostles in the book of Acts, for instance, they did it by casting lots. <laughs> you know, this was, this was how it was. There was no uh, democratic system of voting. So the closest we get is some of this stuff, like this passage we've heard from Romans about how the Christian should interact with the governing authority. And as you first hear this, Mother Liz, how does that passage strike you? What do you think it's saying to us about how to interact with, with a, with a, you know, a governing authority? Well, for what, I mean, initially I kind of struggle with it, right? Because it seems to assume, well, it it says that authorities are instituted by God and that they're doing the work of God. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that some could read this as giving carte blanche authority to our authorities and saying, well, they're never wrong, so whatever they do is good with God because God put them there and, and that's just it. Um, and so it doesn't, it doesn't seem to allow... Uh, at least at first glance. It doesn't seem to allow any kind of um, accountability um, or to allow for uh, these authorities or institutions to be wrong. Mm -hmm. So this is why it's also good to have a study Bible. Yes. And whenever you encounter passages like this, uh, uh, dear listener, this is why it's good for you to have a study Bible so you can look and see a little bit about what the notes say. So I'll at least read you what, what, my note says I have the common English Bible here, the common English study Bible. And this is what it says about 13, one through seven. This difficult text has received many interpretations and misinterpretations. It's neither a full blown treatise on church state relations, nor the only passage in Paul with political overtones. It should be read with attention to its immediate context in the letter, the letter's overall purpose, the political and religious situation in Rome, Paul's convictions and practices more broadly, um, and other biblical passages, including Revelation 13. And uh, that reference, if you want to go look up Revelation 13, is about Rome as a great lumbering beast. (laughs) So it doesn't paint Rome in a very positive light. It isn't a call to uncritical obedience to authority, government, or otherwise. For challenging power when it opposes God is part of the biblical tradition. Uh, So one way to read the Bible is always to have a good study Bible so you can have things like this to point, point pieces out to you so you can read things in context and learn a little bit more when you don't know. And, and it's also good when you read the Bible to read it in the context of the whole Bible. Um, because there really is a lot of uh, tradition there about people challenging government authorities. And I'm sure that, that Mother Liz can think of the probably biggest one uh, straight off the bat, one of the primary stories of our faith from, from Exodus. I'm sorry, the Pharaoh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was paying attention, but I like got really freaked out for a second. I don't know why. 
I put all this confidence in you. What? I, I put all this confidence in you. I know that you know the scriptural story. But yeah, the Pharaoh story. I mean, that's that is that is a that whole story is 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 it's fundamental to Judaism for one thing. Right. I mean, right. so so much about Judaism is about freedom from slavery. And how did the how did the uh, how did the Hebrews gain their their freedom from slavery, but by by protest by, by protest with the government that you know, Moses Moses carried out on the on their on their behalf. Yeah. Um, we've recently in the men's Bible study uh, looked at the book of Daniel, and you know Daniel functions as a worshiper of God in a, in a Babylonian culture that's not his own and, and stays faithful to, to being a, a worshiper of God and, and puts himself and his friends in, in great danger by, by, by being faithful to, to what he knows God wants of him and, and his people. Um, I mean, the, 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 this is an ongoing story again and again throughout the scripture. And, and I mean, Jesus himself was killed by the religious and the governmental authorities. His execution was a state execution because he was a threat to Rome. So I, I agree with this commentary. I don't think that that's what Paul is saying here is that we should just be blindly obedient to leaders. But at the same time, I think he's saying that authority itself is instituted by God for the good of the people over whom that authority exists. Right. And I, this is exactly why catechesis is important, right? So that you understand, so that we all understand, because Father Rob and I had to learn this too, right? That we can't just look at scripture flatly on the page and expect to completely understand what it means. That there is a great deal of history and tradition and reason and study that goes into these things and that there are a lot of really well-educated people that have gone through ancient texts and ancient languages to to help discern and give us some context for what this stuff means um because it is difficult right like this is, we have been studying this bible for thousands of years and we're still learning new things about it um and so to to just read it and think that we completely understand all the meaning is, um, it's just incorrect. Yeah. Agreed. So let's look at one more passage, which is very similar, but it's one that is often cited about how people relate to, to government entities. So next, next Bible drill for a donut, first Peter two, 13 through 17, first Peter two, 13 through 17. Who no. will get there first? Did, Where's you found it? No, I I accidentally turned too far. I got it. Ah, fine. <laughs> All right, so I'll read it this time. This is First okay. Peter two, thirteen through seventeen, and for the sake of the Lord, submit to every human institution. Do this whether it means submitting to the emperor as supreme ruler or to governors as those sent by the emperor. They are sent to punish those doing evil and to praise those doing good. Submit to them because it's God's will that by doing good, you will silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Uh, do this as God's slaves, yet also as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Honor everyone, love the family of believers, have respectful fear of God, 
honor the emperor. How's that one grab you? <laughs> well. <laughs> Any thoughts? Um, so this one strikes me a little bit more as um, you got to do the best you can in the situation that you're in, right? Like being respectful and appropriate. Uh, oh, it reminds me of Dr. Jean. Yeah, honest, direct, and appropriate. Honest, direct, and appropriate. Um, and I think that the verse 16, I think, is especially important. As servants of God, live as free people, yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Mm -hmm. um, that we have, it, it holds some responsibility for us mm -hmm. um, in our own dealings. Um, my note here in my Bible also points out that what's surprising is that Peter calls on his audience to honor the emperor and to honor everyone. This puts the emperor on the same level as everyone else. You know, there's a lot about scripture that's, that may seem sort of obvious to us, but is a subtle kind of undermining of, of what people's thought. Yeah. Subversion of what people's thoughts would have been. That's a crazy idea in, well, even to some degree in our culture, but definitely in that first century culture, that would have been crazy to think about, about the emperor and the, the average person being anywhere on the same level. Absolutely. You know, the same thing is true, by the way, of, of those very misogynistic sounding passages where, where Paul says, you know, wives submit to your husbands, you know, and then he goes on to say, you know, husbands love your wives as, as you, as you love Christ. Um, and we hear that wives submit to your husbands and we go, oh my gosh, Paul, gross. Yeah. <laughs> it's not it's terrible you know we get we 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 sort of rightly get outraged about about that kind of stuff in scripture yet at the same time what we miss is that in that culture in that time you can imagine all the men sitting there going yeah that's right wives submit to your husband yeah. and, and maybe maybe even the maybe even the wives also saying yes that's the way that's the way it it works. And then to, to have him say, husbands, love your wives the way you would love Christ would be sort of like, whoa. Yeah. Cause that's, I mean, what the way that they're called to love Christ is full and utter dedication and service. Yeah. So Completely. even in passages that are certainly and admittedly misogynistic, there is also this subtle undermining that is right. going on uh, that, that Paul probably would have gotten in a little bit of trouble with his audience by saying things like that. Um, right. Something to consider when you read scripture, especially the really difficult yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, Always do like a second, third, fourth pass through. Cause there's a lot of stuff that's easy to miss. No. Oh, yeah. And uh, I have a book called render to Caesar, Jesus, the early church and the Roman superpower written by Christopher Bryan who was my New Testament professor when I was in seminary, lo, those many years ago. He would definitely and, be a friend of the pod if he knew. Oh, absolutely. We 
Absolutely. He'd be here in a second. So, <laughs> so this is what, what uh, he's actually quoting another scholar named Paul Ochtemeyer, but this is what uh, he says in his book about one of the things he says about this first Peter passage. The concluding verse of this section thus establishes a hierarchy of values and allegiances. All people, including the emperor, are to be shown due honor and respect. Fellow Christians are to be regarded as members of one's own family and shown appropriate love. God alone is to be shown reverence. If you know the right thing to fear, you have no need to fear anything else. So I kind of like that hierarchy of values and the God is the only one that is said there to be respected so greatly that, that the word fear is used. Yeah. yeah. Even the it's, emperor is subject to God. Yeah. If you know who to fear. Mm -hmm. I think that's great. Isn't it? Um, one more. First Timothy 2, 1 through 4. First Timothy 2, 1 through 4. Okay, real confession. I already turned to it. Oh, okay, go ahead. What does it say? I never did these drills. They stress me out. <laughs> I grew up in the Episcopal Church. We didn't do stuff like this. <laughs> we should have. We should have, probably. <laughs> Seminary would have been a little easier, maybe. Do you think we could get our youth to do this now? No. Do you think that we could even get close to getting them to do this now? We'd have to start with the young ones. Work our way up. We can have like competitions on church on Sundays. If we can ever go back to church on Sunday. Yeah, that would be great. All right. So verses uh, one through four. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Hmm. Boom. That's like a mic drop. <laughs> and then you get out, right? Like a, this is the beginning of the, of the chapter and then he's out. That's all you yeah. need. I mean, and he goes on for a little bit, but. Yeah. And what strikes me in this one is the praying for our leaders that we yes. are we are told to pray for our leaders this is a, right. certainly a tradition in the episcopal church every week in the prayers of the people we pray for the president no matter who the president is we pray uh, for uh, also for the, the governor and our mayor generally and other elected leaders and when we do that we do something very biblical and yeah. i think we do something very important is to 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 pray for them and and i know that sometimes people get real twisted up about the idea of praying for leaders especially the ones they don't like right like as if they they don't deserve prayer i mean i i'll admit i get frustrated sometimes praying for people that make me mad but i think that the that the real reason why it makes me mad is because my prayers will change me if i pray for them i won't be mad at them anymore right because i will start to see them a, just a little bit more as God sees them. Um, and I'll have some care for them and some compassion and respect because when I open myself up to God in prayer, God moves and changes me. And I think that, like, that's really the point that, that the author is making here. Um, 
So when we, we pray for kings and all who are in high positions so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity, that not only will the people we're praying for be changed, but we will be changed too. And when we're all changed, our world changes. Things are better. Yeah, we believe that that prayer it has a power and that, that it has the power to change. Right. And we think when we pray that we're only supposed to pray for people that we like that that are close to us but then to to think about praying for somebody we don't like whether it's a leader or just somebody in our in our sphere of life that we don't like that that is definitely hard i'm not saying that it's it's not hard but i think there is an another way to think about it i think there's and i think this is what this passage acknowledges that yes it can it changes us because we believe fundamentally prayer changes us but your prayer might be that 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 leader's heart be changed, that that leader's decisions be wise, and and especially maybe in a time when we are particularly frustrated with a leader, it seems like a more of a reason to pray for that person rather than less. Uh, we 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 want there to be change for ourselves. We want there to be change for for others and. That, and this is one of those good catechesis points. I think this is where the scripture too tells us to be nonpartisan, that, that yeah. whether it's in our politics or in our lives, that we are really called to pray for everybody. Jesus told us to pray for our enemies and to pray for those who hate us. And that's, again, it's, it's, uh, it's hard. It's hard, but that's what it means to be a Christian. And I think it's an important lesson on prayer too, right? Prayer, while it is an important connection piece between us and God, um, and it's to build our relationship and our foundation of faith, it is also to change us and to change our world, right? We cannot expect things like wonderful and amazing things to happen if we're not fully engaged in them. And being fully engaged in them means praying about them. Yeah. At least that's what we believe as Christians. Yeah. Yeah. There are other passages that talk about similar things. These are the ones that are the most well-known and the tradition itself, as we've pointed out, has really a lot more uh, to say that that is about uh, questioning leaders. We mentioned the Exodus story. I mentioned the Daniel story. There's also the story of John the Baptist before Herod. You know, this is why John the Baptist was killed and beheaded because he questioned Herod's character and he questioned Herod's lifestyle. Um, think about the prophet Nathan before David, after he discovers that David had Bathsheba's husband Uriah sent to the front lines and killed and tells this wonderful little parable and and says, you are the man to David. And, and, and David is convicted by by Nathan's recognition of his sin. I mean, this is there's a, a big tradition of this throughout Scripture of, of holding leaders to account, of holding leaders to account for their decisions, the way they govern. I mean, there's story after story in the Old Testament of good kings and really bad kings, <laughs> really bad kings. Um, so there's a lot more there to explore, but that's the basic gist of what Scripture says, that we are to, to honor our leaders to give them the same kind of honor we would give to any other neighbor, but also to 
to hold them to account for wise and loving uh, uh, leadership and a recognition that that they also will have a, to give a, an account to God one day for how they've led. And yeah. So I want to look now at, at tradition. And to do that, we're really going to kind of go through the theology of, of one great Anglican thinker and, and my favorite Anglican thinker, William Temple. My great, my great theological friend of the pod who I made when I was in seminary. <laughs> I've talked about William Temple in sermons before. I, I quote him a, a lot. I remember when I first joined the Episcopal Church, the first priest, first rector I had in the Episcopal Church quoted C.S. Lewis ad nauseum. Like every sermon had a C.S. Lewis quote in it. He loved C.S. Lewis. Um, I don't quote William Temple quite as much as he quoted C.S. Lewis, but but he's kind of my guy, and I wind up going back to him uh, a lot because in seminary we were told by our systematic theology professor to make a friend, a theological friend, and follow them through all of the all of the doctrines that we were studying in our class over the course of two semesters. So I spent a lot of time with William Temple, and one of my favorite books. He lived, by the way, he was Archbishop of Canterbury in the early 1940s and died in office. Um, uh, so he was Archbishop of Canterbury uh, during a portion of World War II. And he wrote a book called Christianity and Social Order. It's a very short book. It's worth reading, even though it was written in 1940s England. It still has a lot to say to us today and gives us a really good Anglican slash Episcopal perspective on on how the Christian can live in, in a modern society. The kind of second third of the book or so, he lays out a very specific program that, that has a lot to do with 1940s England and isn't particularly helpful now. It's interesting to read, but the, the first part is the, is the best part. So, um, so before we really get into that, though, I want to I wanna ask a question. Um, this is sometimes asked of us. Other Liz, can clergy and churches endorse political candidates? Can we endorse political candidates or, or uh, certain policies or whatever? I mean, we, they can. I think, I, I think the question is, should they? Um, you know, we all saw in the different, uh, well, I don't, it depends on if you watch it, the different, um, conventions for the political parties this year that there were religious figures at both endorsing both candidates. Yeah. Um, well, like that, go, go ahead. ahead. No, you go ahead. Just, just, just <laughs> that they absolutely can. But I think that when you, when a clergy person does endorse a particular candidate, especially in our incredibly divisive climate, that they run an, they run a risk of alienating people and, and, losing their ability to speak the truth in tough situations because people will think, oh, you're just partisan. Like you're just preaching from a partisan place as opposed to preaching the gospel. Yeah. Because the gospel has a lot to say to us about a lot of things, but we have to be open to hearing it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I like that. That's a, a really important place for clergy to be. Yeah. So the should thing is, is right on for me too. 
that I don't think we should. And I've, I've seen it said in other places by smarter people than me that clergy should not do this for that reason, that people should be able to approach us no matter what. People shouldn't feel like, well, you know, Mother Liz is voting for candidate X, and so I'm voting for candidate Y, and I don't know that I can really get along with her or feel like I'll really be heard or, or whatever. It, it, uh, it creates a, a barrier that, that shouldn't be there. And it goes against the thing that we've already seen in Scripture, that we really should be nonpartisan. We should be representatives of the gospel and not representative of a particular party platform. In our tradition, in the Episcopal Church, we, 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 um, we can endorse political candidates. Uh, I could never get up as, as a representative of St. Paul's Episcopal Church and say, on behalf of the church or whatever, that, it, that we endorse this political candidate. In my own capacity as an individual Christian and even an individual clergy person, I can, but never as a representative of the church. But you ask the deeper question of the should, and I think that that's that's probably the more important question. As a side note, though, I will say that I've learned that it's canonically forbidden for Roman Catholic clergy to to endorse political candidates. So they have gone a step further. They also are canonically forbidden from running for office. They can't. Right. Which the in the um, Episcopal Church apparently you can run for office. There is a young clergy woman running for political office in for a Georgia State Senate seat right now. Her name is Kim Jackson. If you want to go check out her campaign and um, see what that's about. And then there was the Episcopal priest. I think he's retired now, but John Danforth is that right? I forget which state, but he was a senator. Um, and um, a really interesting, really interesting guy, but an Episcopal priest. And I don't think he was assigned to any particular parish when he was doing this, but you might look up John Danforth and, and he may be somebody that you remember or recognize. So, so when it comes to candidates, uh, we are really, we, we should not, and you would never hear Mother Liz or I uh, endorse a particular political candidate for the reasons that we've talked about. Um, but that doesn't mean that the church has no place in politics and can't speak to politics. And, and that's where I want to get a little into William Temple. The very first chapter of his Christianity and Social Order book asks, can the church interfere in politics? Because, you know, you'll often hear people say, you know, hey, you know, you're, you're a, you're a, you're a Christian minister. You, know, you you stick to you stick to preaching. You stick to preaching, and you you stay out of all all yeah. of this stuff, as if they have nothing to do with each other. And this is what what William Temple says. This is a quote: "The claim that the church has a right to make her voice heard in political and economic matters is not a new claim, but one that in times past was unquestionably accepted. This claim is based on the fact that politics and economics." affect the lives and dignity of human beings, thus are subject to non-political and non-economic standards. Yeah, I mean, I, to, I mean, that's, a, I love that quote. That's great. 
That's great. I think um, I I appreciate this quote in that it it kind of holds the church accountable for commenting on on social issues, political issues. And I wonder if we might have done a better job of catechizing people if we were to speak out a little more boldly about certain issues, because mm-hmm. then we'd be forced into conversation about them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's hard to do that in a way that that honors that we are we are trying to be nonpartisan. Right. And so I think we can do that. I think we should do that. I think we have to be careful about it. But this is where the catechesis comes in, as you're saying, right? We have to help people understand that when we do these things, that that we are speaking from our Christian lens. We're not speaking from our partisan lens. When it comes to voting, he says, when when voting a or and I'm summarizing him here, when voting a Christian should not consider one's own interests first, but should more appropriately consider first the best needs of the country. Temple cautions the reader to remember, however, that in looking to the country's interests, there lays the risk of succumbing to a dangerous national egoism. Therefore, the country's best needs require first and foremost a Christian interpretation. So his idea about how should the church interfere is basically that the church should not interfere on an institutional level, but that Christian persons should. So he says that people acting in the church's name do God's work in the world, which is, I think, absolutely right. Yes. Yes. So the good of all believers. Yeah. This separation of church and state thing just means that the government can't make, you know, formal laws that, that somehow compel people to, to be religious in this way or that way. But Christian people who are citizens of, of, any country can certainly make their voice heard about what their values are and how they would like to see people treated and what laws should exist and and shouldn't. So he gives a kind of summary of, of principles that are Christian social principles, primary Christian social principles. And the very first one is that humans are sinful. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we have to recognize that humans are sinful. And he would say, especially your infant son, Mother Liz. Well, good gracious. That poor baby. <laughs> well, I, this is a lengthy quotation. We haven't baptized him and gotten that demon out of him yet. Yeah, we do need to get him baptized, don't we? Yeah, we do. I'm going to read a lengthy quotation, and this is why I pick on poor Liam, because... <laughs> He has an interesting concept of, of original sin, which usually we think of in really a negative ways as a doctrine, but, but he has a different take on it that I think is important to think about. This is what he says. When we open our eyes as babies, we see the world stretching out around us. We are in the middle of it. All proportions and perspectives in what we see are determined by the relation, the distance, height, and so forth, of the various visible objects to ourselves. This will remain true of our bodily vision as long as we live. I am the center of the world I see. Where the horizon is depends on where I stand. Now, just the same thing is true at first of our mental and spiritual vision. 
Some things hurt us. We hope they will not happen again. We call them bad. Some things please us. We hope they will happen again. We call them good. Our standard of value is the way things affect ourselves. So each of us takes his place in the center of his own world. But I am not the center of the world or the standard of reference as between good and bad. I am not and God is. In other words, from the beginning, I put myself in God's place. This is my original sin. I was doing it before I could speak, and everyone else has been doing it from early infancy. I am not guilty on this account because I could not help it. But I am in a state from birth in which I shall bring disaster on myself and everyone affected by my conduct unless I can escape from it. Education may make my self-centeredness less disastrous by widening my horizon of interest. So far, as, so far it is like cli the climbing of a tower, which widens the horizon for physical vision while leaving me still the center and standard of reference. Education may do more than this if it succeeds in winning me into devotion of truth or to beauty. That devotion may affect a partial deliverance from self-centeredness, but complete Deliverance can be affected only by the winning of my whole heart's devotion, the total allegiance of my will, and this only, the divine Lord disclosed by Christ in his life and death can do. I, I think that's beautiful. I think that is a beautiful way of describing sin and, and my self-centeredness and that my whole life is just me trying to work my way out of, out of being totally self-centered and, and, Every person, whether they believe in God or not, or is a Christian or not, one of our primary principles has got to be that we believe this is everybody. This is how people work. Yeah. I think this is a really beautiful quote, too, as a parent, right? And putting into context my role as a parent for this tiny baby that can cannot even help but be the center of his own world, right? But my role is to help him see that he's not. And that that will benefit him and the world at large greatly. That will only make his life richer to see that he is not the center of it. Um, mm -hmm. And that every day I do that little by little, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's really beautiful. And I think that's also a beautiful articulation of the role of the church. Like, mm -hmm. not just as, as parents of children, but as leaders of, and members of communities of the faithful. This is our, this is our work. And it's good work. And it's work that we're all doing together. You see why I like William Temple? All right, he's fine. <laughs> so that's our first principle that we need to remember. Primary Christian social principle is that human beings are sinful. And, and it's okay to use that word sin. Does, we don't mean this in a judgy way. And I think that this definition, though lengthy, helps us get a little better at it. The next principle is that God is the creator, redeemer, and sanctifier of a sinful humanity. So God created us redeemed sinful humanity through the Son, but the ongoing work of the Spirit is incomplete and will only be complete in eternity. So we know we live in a world that is broken and that we long to be made whole again and that God is the one who created us and, and does this for us, does this work of making whole. Yeah. The next is that human beings are made in God's image. God made human beings in the image of God, so human value is one's worth to God. And to quote Temple, the state must not treat persons as having value only so far 
as they serve its ends, as totalitarian states do. The state exists for its citizens and not the citizens for the state. So above all, human beings are made in the image of God. I think this this is an exact a perfect connection to the book that we just read that we just finished up with our um, on our podcast the the one about the consistent life ethic that so often in our culture it's not just a totalitarian state but it's a consumerist state that views people as consumable um, objects to be uh, objectified and used and then discarded mm-hmm. um, that they are means to serve an end when in fact human beings are are the ends right like because they are the image of God. They are God in this world. This is a balanced, nuanced perspective when you think about it, because what did we just do? We went through this long explanation of how people are self-centered, how I'm self-centered and you're self-centered, and especially that Liam is so (laughs) self-centered. Maybe. (laughs) uh, So it's it's almost like we say two opposite things, but that aren't opposite really about, about humanity that yeah, we're flawed and we're broken, but we are we are created by God, and we are also created in the image of a God who ha- sees us as having ultimate value, even though that God knows that we're self-centered. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's grace, right? Like that is like the definition of grace. We're so flawed and so loved, all at the same time. It's uh, incredible and incomprehensible. Yeah. This is important for us to recognize. Human beings will mess things up, but we are we are infinitely valuable and that that God is the creator, redeemer and sanctifier of us sinful humans. These are our primary principles as Christians as we think about policies and and people we're going to vote for and everything else. This is where we begin. So then he goes through and talks about some other Christian social principles that are, are that are mere derivatives of of those big three that we named. So the primary principle of Christian ethics and Christian politics, he says, must be respect for every person simply as a person. The person is primary, not the society. So we've we've talked about that. Right. In our baptismal covenant, we talk about how we vow to uh, respect the dignity of every human being. Therefore, we have to acknowledge that every human being has dignity Mm -hmm. and that we are called to respect it. Will you strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being? This is this is exactly the principle. And yeah, that's why we read that whole book for several weeks and talked about what a consistent life ethic looks like. What does it really look like to value human beings the way that God does. And, and it's hard, hard work. So the three derivatives that come from this, he says, are freedom, social fellowship, and service. So freedom is the primary goal of politics and freedom is both for and from something he says. So since we're sinful, this is why we have to have laws. (laughs) We know we live, we, we live in a world where we know that we have to lock our doors. Um, because we, we know people may, may do things that we, we don't want them to do. We need to be free from other people's bad choices. Um, yet at the same time, Temple points out that Jesus had absolute respect for people's personal choices. So it's about balance again. We have to make the widest opportunity for people to, to be allowed to make choices, but we also have to protect other people from people's poor choices 
But as followers of Jesus, we note that Jesus, as he says, quote, he would not bribe or coerce men to become his followers. God doesn't do that. God doesn't, doesn't tell us. God gives us ultimate freedom to either choose the good or not. Yeah, I think about that story of the uh, the rich young man, sometimes called the rich young ruler, where you know he says, you know, Jesus, I've I've done all these things perfectly. Like, what else can I do? And then he says, you know, give it all up, mm-hmm. give everything up, and then he he turns around and he walks away because he chooses not to, mm-hmm. and Jesus lets him go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one way you can also think about that story, you can think about it as he chooses not to. You can also think and hope for the for the rich right. young ruler that he walked away, yeah. yeah, and thought Sorry. about it and made a better choice. But the yeah, right. uh, in that moment, he the he was too hard, right? Because not even Paul was converted in a moment, right? No. We know that he was con- he had this experience, and then it was years later that he actually became the Paul that we know and love today, friend of the pod. And, you know, I didn't realize this either until just a few years ago, because when you read the story of Paul in scripture and like one day he's Saul and the next day he's Paul. But there's just a verse in Galatians that says that after he had this experience on the road to Damascus, he basically had to go off for three years and think about it. (laughs) He had to reflect on the experience he had before he could really live into it. I mean, and maybe that's what happened with the rich young man or the rich young ruler. He He needed some time. Yeah, he was the precursor to Paul. Uh, yeah, I think that's which I think is also another really beautiful part of the Christian life, right? That there, we can always turn back to God. Yeah. It doesn't have to be in this one moment. That's not when our decisions are made, but it's always available. It's always an opportunity to, to go back. Yeah. So the second derivative principle is social fellowship. He points out that humans are inherently social creatures. This shows up in Genesis, by the way. That 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 uh, why did why did God create woman? Because it says it it because wasn't good for awesome. man to be alone. <laughs> what? Because we're awesome. Well, that too. That <laughs> I'm too. sorry, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. This the uh, man was not good enough, so God created woman, and <laughs> then it all worked out. But but it says it was not good for man to be alone, and that isn't just just a kind of precursor to marriage. You can think of it that way if you choose to, but I think it fundamentally says it's that being alone is not a, a good thing. We're made to be social creatures. And so for Temple, he says family's primary, followed by other social units like schools, religious organizations, social organizations, et cetera. I mean, we are, we are made to live together in community. We're hardwired to live together in community. The next derivative principle is service to the common good. People's freedom and fellowship allow them to choose their work. Every person lives as part of a wider community and has an effect on that community by the work they do. So the need for some level of sacrifice is to be acknowledged. Human beings nevertheless should not be made to work in substandard, miserable, or demeaning conditions. Uh, He talks a lot about the dignity of work in the book. and that we, we should be allowed to do these things that we, we feel called to do, but, but we also should be able to do them in, in conditions that are uh, you know, safe. safe. 
Yeah. yeah. Again, I I would encourage listeners to um, to go back and check out that consistent life ethic book that we just read. Yep, absolutely. So then he goes on to talk about some of the proper ends of life. I'll just touch on these people over profits. Production in the workplace can't be placed over the priority of family and social relationships. Human beings produce goods to meet human needs, so profit cannot be primary in an, the primary objective. He talks about upholding the sanctity of personality. He emphasizes the importance and recognizing of workers as persons and, and not as objects. This is another good connection to our consistent life ethic. Uh, thinking about consumerism as seeing people as just producers and not seeing their inherent value and human dignity. He talks about how class systems violate the principle of fellowship, that the class war in general is an ultimate expression of a breach in fellowship because we assign value to some people and say they're worth more and, and, and others. And so he eventually comes down to six primary objectives of which Christians should encourage government to focus. So six primary objectives that, that, that our tradition says Christians should encourage government to focus on, and that's family, education, income, voice for the laborer, leisure for the laborer, and liberty in worship. That, that these are primary objectives. And to quote him, he says, the aim of a Christian social order is the fullest possible development of individual personality in the widest and deepest possible fellowship. And to conclude with a quote from him, now it is no part of the duty of a Christian as such to draw plans of a reformed society, but it is part of our duty to know and proclaim Christian principles, to denounce as evil what contravenes them, and to insist that these evils should be remedied. Further, it is our duty to judge how far particular evils are symptoms of a disease deeper than themselves, and if that seems to be so, to ask how far the whole existing order is contrary to what he calls the natural order. It cannot be said that it is uh, our duty as Christians to know what the remedy is, for this involves many technical matters, but we are entitled to call upon the government to set itself before the objectives he names and pursue them as steadily and rapidly as opportunity permits. He, he's big too on, on pointing out that this thing about how it's really not our responsibility to, to draw out how certain policies are supposed to work unless we are a person who has a particular knowledge of, of that area of society. Like he uses the example of a bridge and says that, you know, I don't really have any right to tell tell the, the construction crew how to build the bridge. I, I, I'm just, it's my principle to say, make sure the bridge is safe. Make sure the bridge will get people from point A to point B and that it's safe. Yeah. And, right. and then the engineer, if the engineer is a Christian, <laughs> you know, can may have more to say about that. But, but uh, you know, beyond that, if I don't really understand how these policies work, and I, that, that that's not really my job as a Christian. Yeah. I mean, I maybe we should do a study on this book that he wrote. <laughs> it would be great. It, he has a lot of important things to say that hold us to account here, um, calling us to be responsible for our own actions, for our own education, for the the ways that we hold other people accountable. Um, 
and that it's all supposed to be that the I think the most important part of what I'm like gleaning from this as a political Christian is to make sure that the Christian part is the foundation, that it is the base, that it is the lens through which I make these choices. Um, and that involves listening more to what how God is moving and speaking to me through scripture and tradition and reason than, um, than through a 24-hour news cycle or weird accounts on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not saying that God can't work through Facebook because God can work through all things, but I think we need to have a little bit of discernment around that. Yeah, I agree. You know, I've thought about the bridge analogy I brought up to several times over the last few months. Uh, and even in my own, in my own thoughts about, you know, certain things that we've seen going on in the culture, I've noticed how, you know, many of us, especially on social media, have all suddenly become expert epidemiologists. Yeah. We've all become <laughs> experts in the criminal justice system and law enforcement. And most of the time, we don't know what we're talking about, <laughs> really. I mean, yeah. we have, may have a little bit of knowledge, but we really, most of us don't really know what we're talking about. I, I think this is where I notice that I feel like, okay, my Christian duty is to say, all right, I want people to be healthy. Uh, the experts have said that in order for me to be healthy, these are the best things for me to do, that those yep. are probably the things I should do. And, and from a scriptural perspective and talking about honoring people and honoring authorities, that I think that my Christian duty says I should honor the, the advice of and the counsel of experts, you know, government or otherwise. So that comes out of Christian principles. Um, but to, to act like I know something about this stuff that's really no more than anecdotal uh, kind of common knowledge of stuff is really kind of arrogant of me to, to, to do. Yeah, it's a special kind of hubris. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how to build the bridge. I don't know the engineering of the bridge. I just think the bridge should be safe and, yeah. and that I should employ uh, uh, good bridge builders, smart uh uh, architects and smart engineers to to do that work um, and hope that they are people of good character and try to find people of good character. Um, and, you know, it's hard to do. This is hard work. Right. That's again, like this is not this is not easy stuff. But but the engagement with it is faithful. Mm -hmm. Struggling with it is faithful. Well, I like that. The struggle itself is faithful. And, yeah. and that's, I think, what we usually don't like is, is we really want it to be easy. But being, being a sincere, faithful Christian is not, is not easy. And I would like things to be easier. God, can things be easier? Can we make things easier, please? That would be great. All right. I think that's part one of The Political Christian. And next week we will have a special guest for part two of our discussion, where we will talk a little bit about the ins and outs of voting. We're going to offer you some resources from the Episcopal Church to help you as you make decisions, both in the upcoming election and in future elections, because this is not just for you to use this, this, these principles, this information, this catechesis is not for you just to use for November 3rd that is, that is coming up. This is a big election, but this is about faithful citizenship in an ongoing way. So I, I hope that what, we, what we've offered you here in this first part is helpful and that 
that next week in part two, we can offer you some ongoing resources that'll continue to be of service to you as we all try to work towards a, a more just and, and equitable society for, for ourselves and, and all of our neighbors. Amen. All right. So remember, you can visit us online at stpaulsnola.org. You can find us on various social media platforms at stpaulsnola. And may God bless you. And we hope to see you soon. Bye.